This is Africa Digest. It is 1700 hours Central African time on Africa Digest on Channel Africa, where we give you news from an African perspective. My name is Spumelele Zundi. Hello, welcome to the program. And if you are listening to us in Southern Africa, you can find us on 9625 kilohertz. That's 9625 kilohertz in Southern Africa on the 31 meter band. And you can also stream us. We are on channelafrica.co.za. Channelafrica.co.za. If you want to live stream us, I am with Onelentinti Wisada Matebula and Musibudi Makura the South. Yes, of always. South Africa's parliament mourns the death of a member following a botched hijacking. Today marks World Refugee Day. In economics, a British Prime Minister faces a new showdown with the pro-EU MPs over Parliament's role in the final Brexit deal. And in sports, Morocco facing a humiliating exit from the World Cup. On Alentinti has news. Thank you, Spoo. At least 10 people have been killed when a mine dump collapsed in Zambia's second largest city and copper belt mining hub of Kitwe. Police say they have so far only managed to retrieve 10 bodies and seven bodies of those injured. The number of those still underground is yet to be made known. More than 190 people are now thought to be missing after Monday's boat disaster on Lake Toba on the Indonesian island of Sumatra. The number revised up to 130 is three times the number of passengers the boat was licensed to carry. Lake Toba, the world's largest volcanic lake, was busy with tourists celebrating the annual aid holiday when the boat sank in poor weather. Rescue workers say only 18 survivors have been found. The Rebecca Henskar reports. The new number of missing people means that the ferry, when it sank, was packed three times over its capacity. Authorities say the boat operators didn't hand out tickets, so there are no records of who was on board. Fajar Putra's brother is one of the missing. He's still holding out hope that he's alive. This is a test from God for our family, he says. Along with dozens of grief-stricken families, he desperately waits for news at an information centre that's been set up on the shores of the lake. Eritrea says it will respond positively to conciliatory overtures from its bitter for Ethiopia, raising hopes of a fresh start in the Horn of Africa. The Eritrean president says he would fully accept the outcome of a border commission ruling as a positive message. Thousands of people were killed in fighting over disputed territories in the late 1990s. The BBC's Emmanuel Igunza. Eritrean President Isaias Afewerki has today announced plans to send a delegation to Ethiopia to begin talks to resolve a bitter border dispute that has lasted more than 16 years. He made the announcement in front of thousands of people who had gathered in the capital Asmara for celebrations to remember people who died fighting for the country's independence. The statement is Eritrea's most significant response since Ethiopia's ruling coalition announced earlier this month that it will fully abide by a 2002 border ruling. 
Hungary's parliament has adopted a controversial package of laws penalizing NGOs that help migrants. The package of legislation was voted through by 160 votes to 18. The government says the laws are aimed at people helping undeserving migrants to acquire refugee status. The BBC's Nick Thorpe has the details. Under its provisions, activists and lawyers of NGOs which campaign for human rights for asylum seekers or actively help them could be jailed. The government argues that Hungarians do not want immigration because it threatens national security. The government identifies human rights groups as helping illegal immigrants, so the new measures are designed to restrict their activities. Human rights groups say that the law is nonsensical as they simply assist people who've already been allowed into the country to legally apply for asylum. Lastly, Malawi and UNHCR is Refugees Day commemoration. Malawi on Wednesday joined the rest of the world in commemorating the World Refugee Day amid calls for authorities to respect rights of refugees and asylum seekers. The commemoration comes amid news of various abuses such people face in their camps. The day also coincided with the continued debate about relocating refugees. George Mango has more. The idea with the Malawian government and UNHCR, the initiative with the Ministry of Home Affairs and uh, um, several other NGOs, uh, development-based donors, is to relocate the refugees to a more prominent area where the refugees can actually become self-reliant. A more livelihood, self-reliant sustainability is what the uh, Ministry of Home Affairs Malawian government, in other words, and UNHCR are working together in giving the refugees that come here uh, a more sustainable, durable solution for their well-being in Malawi. Talo African News, I'm Onelin Zinzi. It is 17.06 Central African Time, right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa. Thank you very much, Onele, for that update. Let's start in South Africa, where condolences continue to pour in following the death of a member of parliament, Sbusiso Khatebe. The members from the governing African National Congress was shot dead in an attempted hijacking in Rodeport in Johannesburg last night. He served in the Transport Committee in Parliament. Mercedes Besant reports. The ANC chief whip office in parliament says it's saddened by the loss of one of the majority party's youngest MPs. ANC caucus spokesperson is non-Nebam Shauli. The ANC would like to first and foremost send its deepest condolences to the family, um, his wife in particular and his children, and we would like them to find solace in the fact that they, we are as equally pained about his death um, and that we really, really do hope that um, the law enforcement authorities will get to the bottom of this particular incident um, in that uh, we can't be losing young people uh, on a daily basis um, as we did with comrades Musisa and numerous others um, as a result of crime. So we really do hope that the perpetrators will be brought to book, will be arrested and will be jailed. Mzauli says Khadebe will also be remembered for his great sense of humor. Comrade Khadebe was a very, very vibrant character, very fearless uh, and a very colorful character. Also had a 
great, great sense of humor. Um, he was one of the MPs who'd always, you know, make jokes within the house. Um, he was also one of our youngest MPs. Um, in fact, I think at the time of his passing, he was just below the age of 40. Um, so it really, really is a great loss for the ANC caucus. Um, and indeed, his killing really comes um, at a time that, that the ANC uh, needs more comrades like, like uh, Comrade Khadebe. DA Chief Whip Johnston Hazen says the murder of Khadebe is a sign that no one is immune from falling victim to crime in South Africa. Uh, well, obviously, the Democratic Alliance extends our deepest and most heartfelt condolences to the African National Congress on the loss of uh, ANC Member of Parliament, Mr. Sibusisa Khadebe. Uh, we hope that uh, his friends, family, and associates will find comfort uh, in this time. Uh, this was really terrible circumstances and shows that we have a crime problem in South Africa and that nobody is immune, no matter where you serve in South Africa, uh, from becoming a victim of crime. Uh, we hope that, uh, that his family and friends and colleagues will remember his service to the people of South Africa as a member of parliament. UDM Chief Whip Ngabayomzi Kwankwa says the death of the ANC MP is a wake-up call that something should be done about the high levels of crime in the country. Kwankwa has described Khadebe as not just a colleague but also a friend. I am personally shocked and devastated by the untimely death of Sibusiso Khadebe because not only was he my friend here in parliament but we worked together during the concerned young parliamentarians as we're trying to put together a response to the FISMAS fall crisis as young people in parliament. He did an exceptional job in that structure. His untimely death is very very unfortunate. It, it also calls us to do something about the high levels of crime in South Africa which are going to de- devour all of us if we're not careful. On behalf of the United Democratic Movement I'd like to extend my deepest condolences to the family, the friends in the African National Congress on the passing of Comrade's book. ACDP leader Kenneth Mishwa has described Khadebe as a lovable and good MP to have around in Parliament. Mishwa and the ACDP have joined other political parties in conveying their condolences to the Khadebe family and the ANC. Mr. Khadebe was lovable. He was a good, good MP who was kind, who was cooperative, and who was a pleasure to have around and to work with. We are going to miss him solely, and uh, we are trusting that the ANC and the family will find peace, even though he died violently. They will find peace as we pray that God, who heals broken hearts, will heal their hearts. IFP Chief Whip Naren Singh says he will miss Khadebe's numerous points of order during heated debates in the National Assembly. The IFP has uh, been very shocked to learn of the tragic passing of a colleague from Parliament, Musiso Khadebe, a young colleague who will always be remembered for his points of order that he used to take in the House. We send our condolences to his family and uh, relatives and to the ANC in particular and we trust that the police will leave no stone unturned to actually ascertain how this person's life was taken away. Meanwhile, National Assembly Speaker Balekambete and NCOP Chairperson Tandi Mudise say they are deeply shocked and saddened at the tragic death of Khadebe. Mudise and Mbete have extended their condolences to the ANC and the Khadebe family, describing the death of Khadebe as a painful loss. Mercedes Persons reporting there.
Although some African governments are showing political will to protect those who are internally displaced due to conflicts, more still needs to be done to promote the rights of refugees. This is according to lawyers for human rights. As the world marks Refugee Day today, the organization penned an open letter to South African President Cyril Ramaphosa highlighting the poor treatment of asylum seekers and refugees by South Africa. Channel Africa's Kumbero Mujerere spoke to Sharon Ekambaram, head of the Refugee and Migrant Rights Project at Lawyers for Human Rights, about the importance of Refugee Day. I think never before have we seen internationally the, the extent that people are being forced to move, the large numbers of people moving, whether it's the conflict in Syria, whether it's what happened in Libya, whether it's what's happening on our own continent in the DRC, in Somalia, that is a context where people have no choice. They, in order to protect their lives, in order to run, or to be able to deal with persecution, they are forced to go to another country. And there is declarations that our country has signed on to, international declarations committing to welcoming people who are fleeing and have no choice and ensuring that they have a, a haven which they can uh, you know, uh, survive in. And I think that that's the importance of today, that we, we announce that all over the world because we are seeing, like in America, where children are being ripped apart from their families and put into institutions and punishing migrants who are coming into America, similar situation in Europe, and it's an incredibly important day to denounce such activities. That's not human behavior. That's not what humanity should be uh, represented as in, 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 in those instances. There has also been some confusion uh, with regards to who is and who is not a refugee. Uh, can you just clarify uh, this for us in terms of who a refugee is? A refugee is recognized as someone who is fleeing persecution, fleeing violence, and whose life is at risk and uh, in, in, out of a conflict or a war. And they are forced to leave their country to go and stay in, uh, in another country. And, the, you know, the conditions of fleeing recognizes that you do not take your passport, you don't take anything with you. You flee because you, if you stay there one more minute, you will die. That's the rest. And an asylum seeker is simply simply someone who, once they come to, for example, if they come to South Africa, someone from Somalia, they uh, they present themselves at what is called a refugee reception office, and 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 that office, which is part of the Department of Home Affairs, they need they declare their intention to be recognised as a refugee. They are given a paper to say, okay, you are an asylum seeker seeking refuge in our country. They have to interview the person. They have to consider where the person comes from. And within um, a matter of uh, months, the uh, Department of Home Affairs and the asylum system needs to inform this person that you are recognized as a refugee or we are sorry, you, you're coming from a context where there is no conflict. We don't, we don't uh, think that that is a refugee. You are an economic migrant and this is the system you need to use in order to get documented. documented. And that's 
start how we treat in a humane way sure. people and poor people moving across uh, countries on our continent. Now, you have uh, written an open letter to President Ramaphosa uh, drawing his attention to the plight of uh, hundreds of thousands of asylum seekers whose applications for refugee status have uh, not been finalized. What accounts for this backlog, uh, particularly looking at the South African uh, situation? You know, I want to answer your question with a statement. I think the Department of Home Affairs needs to explain to us how did the Gupta family manage to get their passports within a matter of six years and manage to get permanent residence in six years. And then, on the other hand, as we have stated in our documentation, our experience running legal clinics across the country is that thousands of people present themselves to the refugee reception offices. They get papers saying that they are asylum seekers. They have to go every three months back to these offices to get these uh, papers stamped to say that they are asylum uh, seekers and that their the papers are valid while they wait for the adjudication process uh, through the system to confirm whether they're refugees or not. And many of them wait for up to 15 years. And that's the crisis. Our system has collapsed if it's not in absolute crisis. It's failing to process documentation in order to confirm whether a person has been recognized as a refugee, then has these refugee papers and can stay in the country and, and, and enjoy the benefits of being a refugee as per the regulations and the law and, and, and our policies, or they can be informed that they are not recognized as a refugee and instead they can be given papers to confirm that they are economic migrants, they are economic workers, they're coming to uh, you know, uh, do a job or, or study, and they get papers and they're legal. And that's, the system is not doing that. You are painting a very gloomy picture, Sharon, uh, and uh, obviously a lot uh, still needs to be done uh, to protect the plight of uh, refugees. Do you think there is a political will on the part of African governments to uh, promote and protect human rights of refugees? I think there is. I think if you look at Uganda, you look at Kenya, those countries are much poorer than us. They have much smaller economies, and yet, and they're struggling. It's not like they do, it's easy, but they have millions of refugees. They uh, process people. They come into the country. They can get access to land. They can look after themselves. It's not that they are giving huge amounts of money to support, uh, you know, the, the the refugees on a daily basis. It's just to give them a safe haven where they're not going to be uh, arrested and 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 shot at and killed. And, and it is happening on our continent. I think our country in particular uh, is very dangerously practicing, uh, you know, what the U.S. is doing, what um, Europe is doing, blaming all our economic woes on foreign nationals. That is Sharon Ekambaram, head of the Refugee and Migrant Rights Project at Lawyers for Human Rights, talking to Kumbero Munjarere. <laughs> Hello. To celebrate African women's achievements, self-emancipation, human rights and democracy, listen to Humanity, Women in Unity, an advocacy radio program against all forms of gender-based discrimination and violence against women. Humanity, Women in Unity, on Channel Africa every Thursday at 5 past 10 Central African Time and every Sunday at 5 past 6 Central African Time. Humanity, Women in Unity, 
with Dr. Amalea Gones Malka every Thursday at 5 past 10 Central African time and every Sunday morning at 5 past 6 Central African time. Channel Africa, celebrating African women's achievements. The voice of the African Renaissance from an African perspective. It is info at channelafrica.co.za. If you want to email us, you still listen to Africa Digest on Channel Africa. South African advocacy groups, including the Right to Know campaign, Lawyers for Human Rights and other civil society groups, have lambasted the country's Home Affairs Department for failing to implement policies that constitutionally enforce respect for human dignity and human rights for refugees at the Lindela Repatriation Center in Krugerstorp, west of Johannesburg. Since 2014, the organizations have been working with the South African Human Rights Commission in an attempt to hold the relevant bodies to account, including the Department of Home Affairs, with little success. They say of serious concern are conditions of detention of foreign nationals detained at that center. More from Right to Know's coordinator, Alfred Chabalala, who is at the Lindela Repatriation Center to mark World Refugee Day. Conditions that people are housed under here are very bad indeed for a constitutional country that we have become. And our view is that for many years we needed to fight this kind of conditions. South Africa is the country that cannot be expected to actually, under the current system, just to have this kind of a situation with a human lives because these people are being kept in a very kind of appalling uh, situation here in the prisons. They are, these alarm seekers, they are coming from the countries. You know these people are coming in the first place here because from where they come from, they are confronted by very difficult conditions mm. economically. Coming mm. to South Africa, they are really looking for a relief. No, it's not proper for our country to start now to put a situation or a place like Elindela, uh, uh, which is really a repressive kind of a measure to people who are here not for anything else, but who are seeking their asylum in South Africa as communities from immigration and then don't expect really to be taken that kind of a punitive measure wherein they are being punished for really trying to find what we call human, humanity. Mm. We are a human rights state and we should be very careful about it. Now, Alfred, you know, we also previously heard of a, a litany of allegations of abuse at the centre. This includes, you know, heavy beatings by the guards as well as the denial of access to immigration officials. Is that something that's still happening uh, from the engagements that you've had uh, with people who are affected by this? Yes, the condition is very bad. The first thing we are really not satisfied with is the way in which the government has allowed the operation of this center. They've put it in the private hands. You know, this company that is running this place is not a state in itself. It's a private company which is dealing with security things. So obviously they don't have the expertise that would be necessary for them to cater for human beings in this kind of a situation. So there's a hell of abuse here. People are taken up and down. They don't know what to do. People are maimed. You know, they are maimed. And then this is not really good. 
there is no uh, standard uh, or code of conduct that this institution is given to follow in order for us to be able, because we, we are a signatory of serious instrument as human rights country. Uh, South Africa is respected for its own kind of a record in terms of what we tell the world we are able to do, because we're supposed to take care of these people. So we are closing people into this detention in order actually to put them on a seriously, seriously upholding uh, conditions as if people have done something wrong, but these are human beings. So we are very much wary of this situation, and we are saying this country cannot afford to have this kind of a situation. We've been fighting for conditions that have been happening for the many years in the past under the apartheid system, where inhuman beings were taken for a ride and not being respected. So we cannot, really, we cannot, we're saying as a civil society, we cannot afford a situation wherein under our watch and under our democratic state and constitutional dispensation that human beings mm-hmm. are subjected to this kind of conditions. Now, of course, there's going to be um, a brighter spotlight shone on this particular issue today because, of course, it is World Refugee Day. But, um, Alfred, of course, it's not the first time that uh, you are coming out and you're not the only organizations that have come out to really um, uh, condemn uh, some of the things that are happening there at Lindela, what has been the response from authorities, if any, you know, and um, with so many failed attempts at getting the situation um, under the attention of the powers that be, what happens now? Well, we are expecting the Department of Home Affairs to give a proper response on these issues. However, the Department of Home Affairs is not giving any indication whatsoever to show that they are very sensitive to the matter. We see instead that the authorities are responsible for running the Lindena. However, in practice, they've given it under the uh, private hands. So as, as we are sitting here, what we are really experiencing, what we see people being subjected under inside there, is not in terms of any kind of a conduct that is up to the date. So the government seems to be ignoring all these kind of uh, noises that we are making. And we are going here with the lawyers for human rights. We are even with the Human Rights Commission, which is a, it's a state institution that is supposed, they are supposed to take seriously because constitutionally this body is meant really to be a watchdog. Uh, for the for the state activities, but the government is simply ignoring it. Mm, the mm. Department of Home Affairs is simply ignoring it. I, I think they feel that these people are not supposed to be here. And then, how could you? How could you as South Africa? Because we know for many years that South Africa has been a hub of economy for this kind of for our region, Africa, and even for the world. We've got people who are coming from outside, but people who are coming from Africa and South and uh, Southern Africa in particular are being victimized more than mm, anybody yeah. else. Alfred Chabalala's coordinator for the South African Lobby Group Right to Know in the Gauteng province talking to Zikona Miso. The Nelson Mandela Foundation has launched its founder's centenary celebrations, a t-shirt in Johannesburg, South Africa, urging people to wear them on Madiba Fridays. In celebration of the centenary year of the global icon, Nelson Mandela, the foundation and the trade core investment apparel have taken on a grand venture to manufacture and sell sell 1 million t-shirts globally. Chief Executive Officer at the Foundation, Silo Hadang, also called on people not to do over it when honoring Madiba.
the significance is to remind people, just not in South Africa, but globally, that each one of us must remind ourselves of our responsibility towards the legacy of Madiba. In the last uh, month, I've traveled to at least maybe five countries, and everywhere one goes, in Europe, in the U.S., in the continent, you find people who respond to the legacy that they loved Madiba. But it's not enough to love Madiba. It's better to actually help build a country, whichever country you live in, the world that cares about the vulnerable. So this T-shirt is to remind ourselves that we must make every day a Mandela Day. We have to take action against poverty and make every day a Mandela Day. And each one of us can do it in our own little corner. You know, you don't have to do big deeds. It can be a small deed that affects one person. You change one person's life, it might have a ripple effect that they change someone else's life too. In terms of the South African reception for the Centennial celebrations, last week the Reserve Bank said that they'll be honouring Mandela with the notes. And people are complaining that, why him? I mean, already the notes have Mandela's face on it. But people are just saying they're just tired of Mandela. Why him? What is your view to that? I think it's, uh, it's important that we also be aware that we shouldn't overdo it in honoring Madiba. That Madiba himself always emphasized that it was not just about him. And we fall in the trap of doing precisely what he was trying to avoid. And it's that that we should be conscious of every time. Of course, this year presents a unique opportunity, to be honest with you. How many more hundred years would have Madiba turned in our lifetime? I was saying recently that... Um, one feels that we lived in greatness, in a great era. And in living that time, we then have to also honor. But in honoring, we shouldn't then be overdoing it. And I think that's a caution that South Africans keep raising to say, isn't it enough? And I think it's in it being enough that we should then always say, how do we make sure that people receive this legacy in its totality? with other people included. And how important was it for the foundation to get a South African company that is actually quite critical in assisting in feeding families, especially from poverty-stricken areas? You know, if there's anything that we need to be conscious of, to try and also do that quite often, that our projects should be helping relieve people of the burdens that they are living with. And some of those burdens are burdens just of being of just trying to survive. The clothing industry is the one that's also suffering most. You know, Factories closed a few years ago, and these kind of projects then give hope that if you can sell a million, because that's our target, if you can sell a million, and 10 women, 10 of these women are the ones who are making them, they become direct beneficiaries. They can feed their families. They can. So, so you are not just doing this in order to help grow Madiba's legacy alone, but you are building a country of his dreams too. With now the lead-up to the 18th of July and everything that's happening and the excitement around Obama coming to South Africa, how's the foundation? Are you ready? Look, uh, the President Obama will be giving the lecture and he will be focusing on two areas in terms of the theme of the lecture. He'll be looking at building an active citizenry and how democracy should serve majority of people. Democracies aren't necessarily saving people at the moment, and it's that that we need to reimagine a democracy that we want. We've run out of tickets. 
That's the most important thing. You know, it tells you that 15,000 people will be seated to watch President Obama, but that we will make sure that hundreds of millions others will be outside watching it on TV, that it's a good experience. So we are building the infrastructure at the moment to make sure that once we press, it's play. Silo Hadang is the CEO at the Nelson Mandela Foundation, talking to Tuto Ngobeni. On Elantinzi has the news headlines. Eritrea says it will respond positively to reconciliatory overtures from Ethiopia, raising hopes of a fresh start in the Horn of Africa. Hungary's parliament has adopted a controversial package of laws penalizing NGOs, NGOs rather, that help migrants and Malawi and UNHCR in Refugees Day commemorations. Channel African News, I am Onelin Sinsi. Central African Time on Africa Digest. Now, this week, high-powered delegates from the public and private sectors of business in Southern Africa gathered at the Empress Palace Hotel near South Africa's International OR Tambo Airport to attend the Vision 2030 Summit. The two-day event aims to reinforce private and public sector support and commitment to the National Development Plan to raise awareness and position the NDP as a South African plan and not merely a government plan and to position South Africa as an investor-friendly country. To help unpack what is being discussed, Channel Africa spoke to Tidi Somaduna, head of the Secretariat for South Africa's National Planning Commission, and Rashmia Ishmael Seville, CEO of the Youth Employment Service. For a plan like the NDP, we need a strategy for implementation we need to know who is going to do what and we need to, to know when what will be done because the vision is long-term vision so sure. 2030 how are we gonna how are we gonna get there but most importantly we need a sense of agency because on the key metrics the key indicators of, 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 of the National Development Plan, we're moving backwards. GDP growth is not what it should be in terms of the plan. If the, we were on track, we should be growing at higher than 3% per annum. Similarly with employment, poverty and those sorts of things. So on the key indicators, we're not moving in the right direction. In fact, we are regressing. That should call for urgency. That should call for greater unity among all the stakeholders. Now, what is encouraging is that with the election of a new president, um, there is a, a new sense of purpose, a, a spirit of action, and, and a call for all parties to put their hands on deck so that we can make progress. And 
that kind of transparency is exactly what's needed because the narrative hasn't been that positive. But we need to be honest with ourselves when we look at the projection that challenge of the plan itself uh, is actually wanting a, a mobility of uh, the economy of uh, 5.4% growth and also a 6% decrease in unemployment by 2030. When we look retrospectively, what have we been getting wrong? Well, to, to get an economy to grow t- takes a, a combination of initiatives and a combination of actors, government being one of them. Quite a lot depends on government because government sets the policy framework, sets the policy directions, government collects taxes, it deploys taxes and spends behind certain programs as it were. So that is very, very important and we must make sure that government does that well. We know that in that regard, government has not performing well. We know that there are lots of inefficiency. We know that there's not always transparency and accountability in terms of what happens in government. But we've identified that problem and we're going to solve it. But it also requires a private sector. We, the private sector has got certain obligations um, in, re- in respect of, for example, employment equity, skills development, black economic empowerment, procurement from black people, procurement from small enterprises and that type of thing. So that we are all working towards expanding opportunities to include more and more people, more and more enterprises. Tashmiya, it's very interesting that CDS is highlighting the need for creating an inclusive participation in South Africa's economy. And you work at Youth Employment Service because we have a big challenge in that regard. Yes, we've got a high unemployment rate in South Africa. It sits at around 26.6 with the last uh, projection in terms of percentages in 2016. But what's actually worrying within that 26.6% of unemployment rate, we're seeing an increase of unemployment of uh, 52.40% of youth unemployment rate for young people within that particular bracket. It's a big challenge, isn't it, as well, creating mobility for young people in terms of employment. You know, when you talk about the number, I think we've got to, we've got to give texture to that number. Mm. Um, we're talking about over a third of youth that are not working. We're talking about over a third of youth that wake up every morning, because most of these are what we call NEETs, not in employment, educational training. So you wake up every day and there's nowhere to go. You can imagine the psychological, emotional toll that this takes on a young person when you have this energy and creativity and vibrance of being a young person and there's no pathway. And why is there no pathway? Uh, There's no pathway because there are structural things that are completely beyond your control. If you are geographically distant um, from where jobs may exist, if you don't have a matric certificate that is some kind of market signal that you have capabilities, where do you go? And so the, the, the unemployment challenge is a lot deeper than a number. And we talk percentages and we, you know, we're not even measuring these accurately. Uh, the, the, the number you gave on 26% is, is the safe definition. It's not looking at people who've, who've given up. So, uh, you know, the, uh, the challenge of unemployment is going to take big structural shifts in where economic activity happens. We, we can't continue with this highly concentrated 90% of GDP comes out of one area in the entire country. 
how do we create economic activity closer to where people live, uh, closer to where the unemployed are? 60% of our unemployed are in townships. Uh, where, where, how are we driving investment and infrastructure in a, a consolidated and aligned fashion uh, into those communities? That is Rashmia Ishmael Saville, CEO of the Youth Employment Service. And you also heard from Tiriso Maduna, head of the Secretariat for South Africa's National Planning Commission, speaking to Benjamin Mushadama. The Centre for Environmental Rights today launched a new report which reveals major inadequacies in the way mining companies disclose information about the cost of rehabilitation of environmental damage. Interledex, the Centre for Environmental Rights' own engagement with these companies and its extensive work on mining, environmental and regulation. We spoke to Christine Riddell. Sure. So the Centre for Environmental Rights has today launched a report called Full Disclosure, The Truth About Mining Rehabilitation in South Africa. And this report concludes that that neither the law nor the accounting standards governing company disclosures ensure that the necessary transparency and accountability about financial provision for environmental rehabilitation takes place. So this, in other words, this is the money that mining companies must set aside to rehabilitate environmental damage. We assessed the public disclosures of 11 JSE-listed companies in relation to their financial provision for environmental rehabilitation, and we found that the information that they provide in their reports, principally their financial statements, about the costs of rehabilitation and their ability to cover these costs is inconsistent, unclear, in some cases unreliable, and it's not comparable between companies. Now, this means that it's impossible to check whether the estimated costs of rehabilitation given by mining companies are accurate, whether enough money has been set aside to pay for rehabilitation, and whether rehabilitation is actually taking place. In other words, it means that it's impossible for shareholders or taxpayers to hold companies or regulators to account. And uh, what is it in particular that is not clear when it comes to that? So what's not clear is that there are figures provided in financial statements that are just simply, in most cases, consolidated figures for rehabilitation. And those amounts are not broken down between the company's various operations. So when you look at this overall figure as a stakeholder, as an external person from the company, you can't tell if enough money has actually been set aside for any particular operation. You also can't tell from the figures in the financial statements whether the assessments that the company has done to determine these costs are adequate. So there's no information, for example, about the particular experts that the company uses to determine the amount that it will need for rehabilitation. There's no details about these calculations, so you don't know what the methods are that the companies use to determine these costs. So from this consolidated figure across all operations, it's very difficult to tell, or it's actually impossible to tell, whether this company has enough money to fix up the damage that it's caused. And fixing the damage that it's caused is a legal obligation. So mining companies, before they start mining, are required by our environmental laws to set aside money for rehabilitation. 
But if they're not giving stakeholders enough information about how they determine these costs and where they put this money, then it's impossible to know whether they will actually be able to fix up the damage. Now, looking at the laws in South Africa that protects our environment, how far do they go in as far as determining the amount of rehabilitation by the price money that is supposed to be provided for rehabilitation would cost, uh, according to the figures? Yeah, so that's an interesting question because our environmental laws around this issue of financial provision for rehabilitation have been in a state of flux over the past couple of years. So historically, mining companies have to set aside this money under the Mineral and Petroleum Resources Development Act. Now, those requirements under that act were not very strong. So there was not a lot of clarity around the experts that were needed to determine these costs. There wasn't a lot of clarity around how much money actually needed to be set aside. The way that that the costs were determined was by using standardized figures, so-called master rates for rehabilitation, and these were very inadequate. But this to some extent, is being addressed. There is now a legal review process that's taking place, and there were, in actual fact, new regulations promulgated in 2015, but unfortunately these regulations don't apply to the older mining companies that had already received their mining rights prior to to that 2015 date. And then there's also, in addition to that, new regulations that have been promulgated which might replace the 2015 ones, but those are still under review. So the law is in flux at the moment on the environmental side, but there are steps being taken to to make the system better, to make sure that there is clarity around how much money needs to be set aside, who needs to determine those costs. So what we've done in our report is we've put together a list of recommendations for that legal review process to make sure that 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 process takes into account what is actually happening on the ground and what the companies are actually doing in reality. So our report shows how badly this is being managed currently and how the law will need to change to take into account these important safeguards to make sure that this money is actually set aside and that it's appropriately calculated. What could be said to be the implications of this on the environment and uh, the South African taxpayer? Yeah. So essentially what all of this means is that if we're not checking properly whether companies have set aside enough money to rehabilitate their damage, and if we don't have comfort around where the money is being set aside, so for instance one of the potential places that companies can put this money are in trust funds, But if we don't know enough details about those trust funds, for instance, we don't know who the trustees are, we don't know what the accessing provisions are, you know, how can you access that money, when do you access that money, what permission do you need to access that money. And that is Christian Riddell, attorney for the Center for Environmental Rights, talking to Wendy Lekalipa. Time for your economics. He has always said Matabula.
Good evening. Thanks, Espumelele. ESCOM employees represented by trade unions NUMSA, NUM and Solidarity have rejected the South African Power Utilities wage offer of 4.7%. The unions say ESCOM is consulting their principals in, on wage negotiations and will provide an answer later. NUMSA's General Secretary, Evan Jim. ESCOM have received that and they have taken a caucus. Having reflected on our collective response and its demand, they have taken a decision that they need to be given time to go back to their principals to reflect. We will meet again tomorrow at 10. Collective bargaining, which we're busy with here, is not collective begging. It's collective bargaining. Whether we move down or we move up, that has to do with how ESCOM is going to respond. We have not agreed to 4.7. And South Africa says the clothing and textile industry has led to a major recovery in the sector from the past few years after coming under pressure from cheap imports from countries like China and others. The industry is once again holding its own against international and regional competitors. Abisha Tembo is chief director at the Department of Trade and Industry. In some cases we are now globally competitive as far as our manufacturing uh, uh, is concerned where if you look at your some of the footwear which we are producing at present, we are producing cheaper than they can produce in China, which is it's a big achievement for us to be globally competitive, which means we can compete with those countries internationally. Where they are selling, we can also sell. British Prime Minister Theresa May faces a new showdown with a pro-EU MPs over Parliament's role in the final Brexit deal, which could influence her entire negotiating strategy after months of debate. The BBC's Rob Watson reports. To lose this vote would be a political catastrophe for Theresa May. That's because it would give Parliament the power to block Britain leaving the EU without a deal, potentially forcing the UK government back to the negotiating table. Mrs May and Leave supporters say taking no deal off the table would remove any incentive for Brussels to make concessions. Most analysts believe, however, it is in any case an empty threat, as no deal would be such a disaster for the British economy. And South Africa is among a number of other exporters who will soon start feeling the pinch of the latest decision by U.S. to increase tariffs on steel products by 25%. Previously, South Africa's steel products used to go into the U.S. duty-free. Director General at South Africa's Department of Trade and Industry, Lionel October, says government is looking for new market opportunities. We're taking delegations to the continent, to, to, to Middle East and also um, uh, to China. Uh, so we're looking at new market opportunities that we can find to make up for, for lost market share uh, in the U.S. As I said, it's not immediate. The impact is not immediate, but the impact will grow. Um, and therefore, we, we are working with the industry to develop contingency plans. Financial indicators, uh, the dollar trading at uh, 10.2 Botswana Pula, 9.91 Zambian Kwacha. BRICS currencies, the dollar is at 3.74 Brazilian Real at 63.76 Russian Ruble, 68.1 Indian Rupee, 6.47 Chinese Yuan and at 13.77 South African rands. Commodities gold $1,273, platinum $858 per fine ounce, brand crude oil $75.30 per barrel. And that's your econ- economics news.
Thanks very much, Usani. 17.50 Central African Time. Your sports news now. Here's Masibudi. Good evening, sports fans, and starting off with football news, Morocco is the first country to be knocked out of the 2018 FIFA World Cup. They suffered their second successive defeat when Portugal beat the North Africans 1-0 in Moscow earlier this afternoon. Now, Cristiano Ronaldo, who scored a hat-trick against Spain in the Portugal's opening match of the tournament, netted his 85th international goal in the first half. He's now Europe's all-time leading goal scorer in international football. Now, Uruguay, as well as Saudi Arabia are currently um, at um, a halftime and uh, Uruguay leads Saudi Arabia by a single goal to nil while Spain take on Iran in a later game at 8pm Central African time. Meanwhile, former Manchester United and Australian keeper Mark Bosniec says Spain should accept the occasional error from goalkeeper David De Gea because he produces saves others cannot make. Now the current Manchester United um, shot stopper endured a nightmare start to the World Cup in Russia, leading a tame effort from Cristiano Ronaldo slipped through his arms for Portugal's second goal in a 3-0 Group B draw. Now, he also faced criticism in Spain for a badly positioned defensive wall when uh, Ronaldo struck a late equaliser. Bosnia says those blunders should not cloud Spain coach Fernando Hero's judgment about his goalkeeper. No, no goalkeeper and no player are immune from mistakes. No human being is immune from mistakes. What's the important thing is that you get back up again. And, and you're right, so he does that, make the saves that no one else can. Okay, if, if I've got a goalkeeper in my team and I'm a manager, and I know, it, I know he makes saves that no other goalkeeper can, I'll accept the odd error. It's when it becomes a little bit more, you know, con, con, consistent that you start thinking to yourself, well, hang on a minute, you know, you've got to weigh up you know, risk over reward. Now, De Gea will have a chance to redeem himself with, uh, when Spain meet Iran with the keeper's place in the team um, um, Iran later tonight with the keeper's place in the team secure after coach Fernando Hero gave him his public backing. Now, Boznach says uh, the process of rebuilding his confidence, however, will happen minute by minute. Play the next game minute by minute. That's all you can do. If you start thinking about the past... You're, you're going to stay stuck in that moment. So you go, next minute I played well, next minute I played well, next minute I played well. All of a sudden, you know, you get through that game, you do that for four or five, you go, well, I've done all right for four or five games. Now I'm back on my, you know, on my roll. That's the only way you can do it. If you start, even if you start playing, if you do a great save and you walk and you think to yourself, yeah, but what about the mistake I made last game? You, you will never recover from that. You must keep going forward. South Africa's sports ministry has welcomed the findings of the independent review into the sensational May 19th on a incident involving Supersport Rugby experts Ashwin Willemsa, Nick Mallet, as well as Nas Bwetha. Now, Willemsa last month walked off a live television set when he claimed he felt patronised by co-analysts Mallet as well as Bwetha. On Tuesday, though, Supersport CEO Gideon Hobane confirmed that no suggestions of racism were found on the part of Mallet as well as Bwetha and confirmed that Willemsa himself refrained, rather refrained from taking part in the review process with her advocate Vincent Malega SC.
And finally, this year's IAAF Gold Label status, Sunnam Cape Town Marathon, offers runners a new and stunningly picturesque route that takes center stage on Sunday, the 23rd of September. Now, the weekend festival of running has just passed the 100-day mark countdown. Now, the, the race begins at one of Cape Town's biggest tourist attractions, the VNA Waterfront. It then will take a turn against the backdrop of a charming Signal Hill before heading into Cape Town's city center. The 42.2-kilometer event ends at Flea Roads, just outside the stadium, where thousands of spectators, runners and organizers will come together in a joyous celebration of accomplishment, enjoying the food, drink and entertainment in a festive carnival atmosphere. Well, the Zaya Sports News at the Sawa and back with more sports news just before 8 p.m. Central African time. This is Africa Digest. It is 17.55 Central African time. Let's recap our top stories. South Africa's parliament mourns the death of a member following a botched hijacking. And today marks World Refugee Day. With that, we wrap up the first hour of Africa Digest. From myself, Spumela Lezondi, producer Luyanda Mawame, technical producer Wazman Mangail, and the rest of the team. Thanks for listening. Send us your emails, info at channelafrica.co.za. We are also on WhatsApp. Send those messages to plus 27763003327. Plus 27763003327. You can also tweet us on Channel Africa One. We leave you with Impilo by Chava. Tendo lupeli <laughs>